Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. And welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. So we have a very special edition of Kabbalah Cafe, of course, of course, given everything that's going on uh, with the Jewish people, with the land of Israel. So we are going to dedicate this class in honor of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land, in Israel, for their safety, security, for peace, for health, for wellness, for healing, and for only, only blessings. Let us say amen. amen. All right, so today's class is entitled Rocket Science. So I don't know if you know this about me, but for years I studied rocket science <laughs> on YouTube. I'm kidding. So here's, here's the deal. This is my understanding of rocket science. First of all, I, before I get started, I probably should ask this question, this very, very important question, which is, are there any um, rocket scientists, anybody that has studied rocket science here? No? That gives me... that Exactly. There's only one reason why I asked that question, and that's because I can pretty much say whatever I wish to say with um, what's impunity. There you go. I was thinking immunity, but no, impunity. Okay, so let's jump in. Here's the deal, and this is the problem that 20th century scientists faced early on in the whole let's create a rocket and send it to outer space movement. By the way, what was the first spacecraft to reach outer space? Who sent it? Russia. They beat the Americans by how many months? They did it October 57, and America sent it in January 58. November, December, January, three months. Um, Okay, hey, good morning. Um, Wait, hold on, are we out of chairs? Oh no, we need more chairs. All right, hold on. Thank you. We need some more chairs. Thank you all our our chairpersons for helping get chairs. It's a great problem. We'll have to we'll have to expand expand the uh, the space. Okay, so here's the deal. <coughs> when it comes to space exploration, the scientists faced a fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is as follows: What do you do when there's nothing to push against? Let me explain. Right, rockets work. One of the ways ways that rockets work, at least in a conventional sense, is the notion of thrust. If you're pushing against something, so you move forward. It's kind of like when you're swimming, right? So the the water forms, where the water has some sort of mass to it, right? It has a weight to it, it's substantive. And when you push against it, you propel forward. So by pushing back, you go forward. That is a classic way of, of, of working. When you walk, when you run, you're taking your shoe, you're taking your foot, you're pushing against something that's offering resistance, and that, that's how you're going forward, right? Wear slippery shoes on a slippery surface covered in Crisco. Crisco? Is that a thing? Yeah. Is that still a thing? Right? And you're not going to go anywhere, right? We call that reality TV. That's what we call that. It's like, oh, can these people run when there's no, when there's no resistance, right? Hilarity ensues. And, and let's, uh, let's make a TV show out of it. The point is, in order to move forward, pretty much the way the laws of physics work is that you have to have something to push against. Oh, look at that. Look at that. I was going to say, it's the, the menches on the bench is... Would you mind standing and let me have your chair? Yeah. Ah. Very good. So, so the way things work is it's, it's the resistance. It's the resistance that propels forward. That's the way, that's the laws of physics. 
Here's the problem. What happens when you break the Earth's atmosphere and you find yourself in outer space? Space, 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 space. <laughs> what happens then? Come back and tell us. Us, 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 right? Here's the problem. The core problem is, what are you pushing against? The air has no mass. It's like a vacuum. Oom, oom. There's, all right, I'm going to stop. There's, no, there's nothing to push against. So how do you move forward if you can't push against anything? How do you move forward? And so what scientists figured out is that they could leverage Newton's third law of gravity or physics. We'll just call it Newton's third law. His first two were fantastic, but his third, (laughs) oh, that was the game changer. Newton's third law says as follows, (laughs) that every action is followed by an equal and opposite reaction. Oh, good to see you. That's the vart. That's what Newton says. Vart in Yiddish means that's the idea. That's the idea that Newton shares. The big idea is that every action is followed by an equal and opposite reaction, which means the following. And this was the big idea that the scientists came up with, is that if you can, if you can produce gas or some sort of other movement or, or thrust backwards, even if it's not pushing against anything, you will move forward. That was the big idea. If you can push something out the back of the rocket, then the rocket will continue to move forward. It's called Newton's, hold on. Every action is followed by an equal and opposite reaction, which means if something is pushing out that way, then the gas that's being, that's being expelled that way is actually creating a reaction. That's the action. The reaction is pushing equally as hard that way, even though it's not pushing against anything else. The thing is, the, the big hop was, the big idea was, you don't need resistance. Where we're going, to quote uh, Dr. Help me out here. 88 miles per hour, back to the future. Who was the guy? Oh, professor. professor. Help me out here. Doc. Oh, we'll just call him Doc. We'll call him Doc for short. Like, the, like Doc said, where we're going, we don't need resistance. Right? And or roads. Sorry? Motion doesn't stop. To stop it. Right. Right. Which is once you're on the road, there's no stopping. Correct. In a space of outer space where there's no there's no friction in the air, there's nothing to stop it. Which is why the Star Wars wings. That I don't know what that was. Right. The wings on this space. Right. And and the other that that doesn't help you move. What you need to do is you need to push because what are the wings? Think about it. Think about what are your wings doing exactly? The wings are um, cutting through. Cutting through what? Think about it. When there's no atmosphere. By the way, they had the first wedding on Pluto recently. I know there was a wedding in Israel. First wedding on Pluto. Guy comes back. Like, how was the wedding? Band was great. There was no atmosphere. 
Anyway, hey, I don't have a lot of opportunity to pull out the Pluto joke. You, you know, the way it works is you just take the opportunities as they come. And so back to the story. When, when you have no resistance, what are your wings doing exactly? Are you with me on this? You understand my question? They're a total accessory. Because if you want to move right, the only way to move right is by propelling, is by pushing something out left. The only way to move left is by pushing out something right. The only way to stop is by pushing out something in the front. Exactly what you're saying. In other words, in other words, in a, in a, in a space of no friction, where air has no mass, and essentially a vacuum, the only way any movement happens is by, in essence, self-propulsion. I want to share with you an insight that the Rebbe shared in the 19, must have been the 1950s, late 50s, or in the 60s. The Lubavitch Rebbe spoke a lot about rocket science. As you may know, the Rebbe himself was an engineer. Um, before he became the Rebbe, he was an engineer. He worked for the U.S. government, and his, one of his uh, jobs took place at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, if you're familiar with that. Um, space. He studied in the Sorbonne, <coughs> University of Berlin, and he was an engineer by uh, original educational training. I don't know if it's original. Originally, he studied Torah, <laughs> and then he studied engineering, and then he was Rebbe, so did a lot of Torah. Was he an aerospace engineer? Or? <sighs> I don't know the specifics. I do know that a lot of the work that he did um, remains classified. Oh. And I one time, this is the craziest story, I was in Pittsburgh, yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh. And I was doing like, you know, the Chabad street Judaism. You know what that is. Like, excuse me, are you Jewish? Would you like to wrap filling or light Shabbat candles or, you know, some, whatever. So this guy comes over to me and says, an older guy, this must have been like 30 years ago, says to me, you know, are you Chabad? I said, yeah. He's like, I worked with your Rebbe in, for the government. We worked on the same team. And what he did, he's like, I can't tell you. I'm like, whoa, that was like a cool, I don't remember this guy's name. I just remember he was like, he was all, he was all like intriguing about it. Back to the story. So here's what the Rebbe said about, about this interesting phenomenon. There's two ways to move forward. One way is to push against something that offers resistance, something that's in essence an obstacle to you, right? You push against it to move forward. But when you have, not, when you have nothing to push against, right, the way you move forward is almost by pushing against yourself. It's, it's what you put out, it's your output <coughs> that is propelling you forward. Your own output moves you forward. This was the big idea. And what's the, what's the, what's the analog, what's the message for us? There's two ways to move forward. I think the original idea was uh, the distinction between um, our divine service nowadays and our divine service when Mashiach comes. So in this time, there's a lot of resistance to spirituality. There's a lot of things that we have to push against. And sometimes the obstacles motivate us to move forward. Darkness is oftentimes, as I'm sure we can all relate to in recent times, darkness is very oftentimes a catalyst to seek more light. Right? When things get a little sticky, it's like we want to move forward, want to propel forward. But what happens one second. But what happens when it's all light? What happens when Mashiach comes? And now there's no more evil. There's no more darkness. It's all good. 
What's going to motivate us forward? What's going to keep us going? And so the Rebbe said we can take a lesson from the rocket. You can move. There's two ways to move forward. One is to push against something that's, that's resistance. The other one is in a space of no resistance to still self-propel yourself forward. And that's the idea. But I was thinking about this in the context of our text, which we've called spiritual surrender. In the context of our own personal journeys, spiritual journeys. We, there are moments in our lives in which we find ourselves struggling with something. Right? There are moments that we find ourselves struggling with things that are providing resistance to where it is that we know we should be or where, where it is that we perhaps aspire to be. And part of the growth over there or the way to grow is by pushing against those things that are providing the foil or providing the antithesis to what it is and where it is that we want to be. But then there's another way. There's a way to move forward even without any resistance. So last week, I spoke about David Copperfield. You guys remember that? Mm-hmm. We spoke about David Copperfield and making things disappear. You remember those, Jimmy? You remember those specials back in the 80s? Right? He made the Statue of Liberty disappear. He made the Orient Express disappear. He made, what happened? He went through the Great Wall of China, something like that, right? He went through it. Or made it also disappear. He did something with the Great Wall of China. I don't know what it was. Anyway, we explained last week that God does something similar. Hashem, God, creates the world, creates everything, and is found within everything. And yet, by dint of the most incredible trick ever performed, and still going, longest lasting trick ever, God hides his imprint on creation. God is right here powering everything. You know, old computers, I don't know, maybe they still do. Um, you say powered by Intel. Remember those? Powered by Intel? Right? This world, powered by God. Little sticker on everything. Powered by God. Made in China. And who made China? Shkoyach, right? Who made China? Also God. And yet, God pulls off the most, inc- that's a second China mentioned today, interestingly enough. Um, God pulls off the most incredible magic trick ever, which is making himself appear to disappear. God doesn't actually disappear. We don't believe in Simpson Kipshuto. We don't believe that God actually moved out to create space for us because that would still imply that there are two domains, God's domain and our domain. Our belief is that God is still right here and the fact that we don't see him is exactly by design. It's exactly what God wanted. It's no different than a parent wanting to give the opportunity to a child to grow into their own space and to have their own autonomy and to make their own decisions and therefore to create space for the child while being right there. Who do you think it was that allowed you to make that mistake, that allowed you to make that choice? It was me the whole time, right? It's still the parent who's holding on in a way of absence, of the perceived absence to the child. That's the way. That's the way it works. Hey, Jeff. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) So what's the point? There are some of us, there are some human beings. We have now the mensch on the bench. (laughs) <laughs> I used it before, but it was, there was no context, so no one, no, there was no reaction. Now I used it. 
There's a context. And now we brought the mensch. That's it. Yes, the mensch on the bench. So here we go. There are some of us, there are some human beings in this world that have a perception of the reality that don't, let me say this positively, that are in on the trick. There are some individuals, there are some human beings who see the truth, who look at the table and see the divine energy pulsing through it, who see world events and recognize that this too is by God's hand. There are some individuals who don't see the facade, they see the divine behind the facade. You want to call them tzaddikim? Sure, you can call them whatever you want. But there are certain individuals to whom the darkness is not dark. The opacity is not opaque. The concealment is not concealed. The tzimtzum is not a tzimtzum. Are they the 36? They have x-ray vision. Very well stated. They have spiritual x-ray vision. These people, these individuals, don't have any negativity or any darkness to push against. Because all they see is light. And the question is, if you're that person, what keeps you going? If all you see is light, what gets you excited? What gets you, and you might say, well, if all you see is light, then of course you're excited because you see God everywhere and there's more opportunities. But as we know, the way human behavior works is that sometimes it's helpful to have something of an opposing force to push against, right? We always say that without darkness, you wouldn't appreciate the light. Right? You almost need that friction to keep things moving forward. But the lesson of the rocket, the lesson of rocket science and Newtonian physics is the following. That you and I can be propelled in a space <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> entirely in a space of positivity without needing the darkness to push against you and I can be, and when I say you and I, I mean those, right? Those that are, that are amidst the light can push against themselves to motivate themselves ever forward. You don't need something negative to push forward. I know many of us have noticed the banding together of Am Yisrael in the last four weeks. And it's been amazing. And I was standing shoulder to shoulder with hundreds and thousands of individuals, of Jews and those that support Jewish people over in City Springs a few weeks ago, shortly after the October 7th attacks. And there was one sentiment that I heard more than any other. I don't know if it's more than any other. I heard one sentiment again and again and again, which is, we should be standing like this together, even when bad, even without something tragic happening. And almost a lament, an internal lament, a question that begs an answer, not even an answer, a response from us. Why does it take something negative, God forbid, to bring us together, to make us inspire Jewishly, to have us proudly declare that we are Jewish, right? We are Am Yisrael. We are, we are the nation of Israel. Why does it take that? And again, this is not a criticism by any means, but really to point out the nature of, of human of human motivation. And that is, it's the, e the easiest way to move forward, to be inspired, is when you're facing resistance. That's the easiest way to move forward. 
but the lessons of the rocket, the lessons of rocket science, the lessons of Russia, Sputnik, and NASA's, what was the first NASA, what was the name of? Um, Mercury. Mercury? Whatever. And so the lesson of NASA and Russia, whoever got rockets to outer space, the first people, they realized this truth. That you can move forward when you're pushing against, but you can also move forward when you're self-propelling. We should be self-propelled. And the point of this, of, of the reason why this is in this context, is because our text talks about two personas. The individual who sees God everywhere and the individual who sees God almost nowhere. The individual who sees darkness, who sees a dark world, a cold world, a world devoid of divine, and then the individual who sees God everywhere. For the one who doesn't see God, there's a lot of motivation. Where do I find God? How do I introduce divine light into this experience? How can we make this world a better place despite all of the brokenness around us? You know, it says that God created the world with the letter hey. There's a verse in Bereshit in Genesis, the opening chapters of, of the Torah's account of creation, where it says this is the chronicles of, of, uh, of, of life, of creation, that happened biyom hi baram, in the day that he created them. Or bihi baram, when he created them. And our sages say, bihi baram, when he created them, Behei Baram, with the letter He, He created them. What's fascinating about the letter He is that the letter He is not a closed system. The letter Mem, for example, is closed. Sorry, the final letter Mem is closed. The letter Samach is closed. The letter He has a top, has a side, has another side with a little opening. The bottom is open. And our sages say, you know what's amazing about the letter He? The indication of the hey is that God created the world unfinished. Yeah. God creates the world unfinished. Why didn't, why didn't, he, make, why didn't he make it finished? Because he wanted to give us the opportunity, litakain, to fix it. God could have made a perfect world. God could have made a perfect society. God could have programmed each of us to be perfect, perfectly righteous human beings. Individuals that have no temptations, no vices, no anger, no rage, no jealousy, no animosity. God could have created us all to be tzaddikim. But God creates a world of imperfection. Not because God desires imperfection, but because God desires us to perfect ourselves. There's a verse in Torah that says, Nasa Adam Betsalmenu Kid Musenu. Let us make man, God says. Let us make man. And the question everyone wonders is, who's the us? Who's this creation committee? And how do I get on the board? Right? <laughs> Let us create man. Who's the we? So some say it's the royal we. God is God means I'm gonna create man, but he doesn't say I'm gonna create man, because you know God's being a little humble, as it were. So God says, Let us make man. That's one answer. Another answer is God was speaking to the angels. Hey, I got some extra time. Let's make man. Some say God is speaking to heaven and earth because the human being is an amalgam of heaven and earth, a soul from heaven and a body from earth. But the answer that I prefer is that God is speaking to us. Nasa Adam, let us, you and I, make a mensch. I'll get you started, 
But if you want to be a mensch, you're going to have to do the effort to improve, to refine, to correct, to fix yourself. None of us are created perfect, despite what our mothers told us. <laughs> our Jewish mothers told us. None of us are created perfect. There's all, all of us have something to fix. And so, one level, one level, one persona and one space of avodah, one space of personal work is to recognize the challenge, to recognize the problems, to recognize our shortcomings, to push against them, to utilize them as forces of motivation. I see something that I can correct and I'm inspired to go and correct them. And then you have the, the rare, the very rare human beings who see God everywhere, who see spirituality in every space, and, who see, and whose bodies don't get in the way of their own souls. It's not just on a macrocosmic level, it's on a microcosmic level as well. Just like they don't see darkness enveloping um, the God's reality, their own personal body and animal nature doesn't envelop or hinder or in any way obstruct their divine godly soul either. Which means, very simply, that these are individuals that are light-driven. They are filled with light, they're light-motivated, they're light-driven, and they are light-filled. The question is, what keeps them going? And the answer is, self-propelled. It is by doing good that they're inspired to do more good. Right? Every action produces an equal, I don't know if it's opposite, but an equal an opposite reaction. Every good deed spawns another and another and another. It's not pushing against negativity to inspire. It's, 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 um, it's, it's working within the positivity. In the language of our text, these are the personas of Yaakov and Yisrael. Our third, our third patriarch, Yaakov, or Jacob, assumed, at a, some point in his life, assumed a new name, a new persona, the persona of Yisrael, or Israel in English. So there's Jacob, who then becomes Israel, or Yaakov, who then becomes Yisrael. Same idea, same names, just different ways to pronounce it. And Kabbalah explains that these two names are highly significant. Yaakov, or Jacob, represents the individual who does not see God everywhere. Yaakov, Jacob, represents the individual who sees divine absence, who sees darkness, who sees void, who doesn't see God, who in their own personal space feels their own negativity, or their own temptation, their own foil to their godly soul, feels that in a very real and present way. That's Yaakov. And their job, like biblical Jacob, like biblical Yaakov, is to wrestle, to fight. Yaakov was born holding onto the heel of his twin brother, Asaph. Holding onto the heel represents grappling, right? Grappling on the mat. Yaakov, the Yaakov persona, is fighting for every spiritual inch. To do a mitzvah is the product of a battle. Because he or she does not see the light immediately. And then you have the very rare Yisrael personas, Israel personas. These are individuals who see the light. They see behind the facade. They, their own soul shines through 
any and all layers that might seem to otherwise obstruct the soul. This is a person to whom there is no darkness, there's only light, spiritual light. And this person walks securely on the path to serve God in a way that is unobstructed by negativity or, or hindrance. This person is propelled by themselves in a positive space, through a positive space. There's nothing to push against. It's only, it's only growth within the realm of positivity. This is Israel. But here's the big secret. Here's the big secret. NASA and other scientists realized that there's a problem. The amount of, of uh, a fuel that's needed to power a rocket into outer space means that you need a big space to hold that fuel. And that creates a heavy craft. Well, what happens? Yeah, what happens when the craft continues to ascend and the fuel gets diminished? So here, oh, one second. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is that as you're dealing with less fuel, you have less power, but your weight is still the same. At some point, the rocket's going to fall out of the sky. So what they did was they created a three-stage rocket. And the way the three-stage rocket works is that at various stages of ascent, part of the rocket actually falls off, making, this, making the craft smaller and lighter, requiring less fuel. As the fuel reduces, the actual size of the craft reduces as well. And then that's, and there's another stage and another part falls down. And then another part falls down until all you have is the core that you need up there. You don't need all of those spaces to contain the fuel because that fuel is burnt off. And if you have a large craft that's being propelled, you're wasting fuel to move a big piece upward. And so here we get to the next message. Here's how it works in life. In life, in life, there are things, there are challenges that we may experience in our younger years that we can shed as we continue our spiritual journey upward. Are you with me on this? We can shed. Today, we may not face the same exact challenges that we faced 20 years ago. Personal, internally. There are many that may still stay around. There are many, and those, and those serve, and those form what I would call our core challenges. The core challenges are the ones that, that, that keep on recurring in our lives. The names may change. The locations may change. But the, the stories may be the same. The stories are the same. It's the same dramas that we're facing because that represents the core of our mission. And sometimes that core needs a lot of work again and again and again. But there are other parts of our work that we've completed and thus no longer weigh us down. Which means, in the language of Kabbalah, of our discourse, we can, in certain areas, all of us, drop our Jacob personas and assume a Israel persona in that space. Before we were working with resistance in this area, it was a struggle, it was a challenge. Today, that area, that one area, is no longer a challenge. That has now been released. We are in Israel in that space. Are we going to be Israel in all spaces? There are very few individuals that have that distinction. Most of us still face 
extrinsic and intrinsic challenges in our spiritual work. But that doesn't mean that we're not making progress. Does that make sense? We make progress in stages. Stage one, stage two, stage three. We're making progress in stages. Letting some of our, some of our um, uh, um, challenges go as we climb the spiritual skies, spiritual heights. Questions or comments thus far? Uh, yes. So you said there were two things that propelled you forward. I think there's a third thing, and it might tie in with what you're saying, is something could pull you forward. Uh, Maybe that is your spiritual well-being. Somebody else helping you schlep out of... Uh, sure, absolutely. That is always a good thing as well. Correct. Sure, absolutely. Um, see. Yeah, that is always that is always helpful to have someone on the outside pulling pulling you out. Yeah, you can't pull yourself out from your own space. If you're needing to be pulled, you can't pull yourself. To be pulled requires some someone that's not in your space. You know, it says something fascinating. Sorry. Oh, I'm not. I would say like Torah, like Torah. That's, Here's, here's um, along those lines, a beautiful insight into Moshe, right? The one who led us out of Egypt. His mother's name was, who remembers his mother's name? Yocheved. Where was Yocheved born? There's a famous, one second, there's a famous tradition that says that Yocheved was born on the way down to Egypt. Listen to this. So remember Joseph... He was sold by his brothers. He's in Egypt, becomes viceroy, whatever. And then there's a famine that breaks out, so he invites his whole family down to Egypt. And so they come down, and there's 70 strong. And the Torah lists all the names. But when you count the names, there's no 70. There's 69 people. But the Torah calls them 70. And these are the 70. And it says, and here's the list. And you're like, well, you didn't count. You didn't bank on us counting, did you, Torah? Because we literally counted, and there's one short. And so our sages say, our tradition says, there were 69 who left Canaan, Israel, to go down to Egypt. But there's 70 who arrived. Yocheved was born. The language of our sages is in the middle of the wall. What that means is on the border. You, they used to have, you know, they used to have thick walls. Maybe they still do. Thick walls. She was born in the middle of the wall <clears throat> on the way in to Egypt. So what's the spiritual significance of that? If you're totally outside, right? If you're completely removed from the problem, you can't pull anyone out because you're not, you're not there. If you're, if you're inside, you also can't pull anyone out because you're stuck inside. Who's the one that can pull someone out? Someone who is both, has a connection to the inside, <clears throat> but also has a connection to the outside. That's who you need. I know a guy, by the way. I'm kidding. Right? If you need someone to break you out, you need someone who has a connection to the inside and a connection to the outside. Who better to redeem the Jewish people, to rescue them from Egypt, than Moshe, the son of Yocheved, the one born between the walls. And what's the point? The point is to schlep out. You need to have a connection, but you also need to be a little bit outside. But the idea here is that we have two ways, two primary ways of, of propulsion. Um, you have the way of pushing against resistance, that's the Yaakov, and the way of pushing against self, advancing in one's, in one's light spaces, and that is the persona of Yisrael. 
It's the Yaakov persona, the Jacob persona that sees the darkness, the Israel, the Yisrael persona that sees the light. Both are valid names. And as I said, the second lesson from the rocket is, as we go through life and as we continue to climb and continue to journey, we can shed some of those Yaakov, Jacob struggles and gain clarity. And again, I, I venture to say that for all of us, there are issues, questions, you know, uh, doubts, struggles, whatever that we've dealt with, that we dealt with um, in the past, you know, in our, in our younger years that we just don't face today. And on a very simple level, it means maybe an area of, 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 of Yiddishkeit, of Jewish observance. Maybe for, for some of us, it was hard to wrap tefillin, go to show light Shabbat candles, eat a kosher meal, whatever it was back in the day. But today, it's easier through practice, through the work, whatever. We've made progress. But for most of us, it doesn't mean that we've wholly, solely become Israel, Israel personas. For, for most of us, there are still areas in which we do continue to struggle, even as we've let go of a lot of those struggles. So there's some, in some areas, we have no, no longer any resistance, and we can just be motivated by the progress that we're making. In some other areas, we still have the resistance, which hopefully should motivate us further. What I want to do is jump inside our text. It's really beautiful. I'm going to pass the text around, obviously. <coughs> and what we're going to see is that these very same two personas are connected to what Kabbalah refers to as the spiritual service of the child and the spiritual service of the servant. So we're going to talk about the servant-child dynamic. Um, not that that's one persona, those are two different personas, but that are going to be very important in our text. So, uh, pass these around. Did everyone get, did, um, let's make sure the copies are going to go around the other side as well. Okay, tell me when you guys have that. I'm going to pull it up on the screen as well. Um, here we go, pass it down. Thank you very much. Here you go. We, do we have, oh yeah, it's coming around. Okay. Um, we are going to start on page 26 of our text. And just to get everybody caught up, just to, 26, 26. The numerology of God's name. Oh, we have extra. Look at that. Did you guys get over there? Yeah, okay. Fantastic. No, we have more. Natan, we have more. We have extra. Thank you. All right, folks, here we go. Um, yeah, do we need more? You're good? Okay. If you had a rank, if this were a BuzzFeed article, and you had a rank personas, right? Which would you rank higher? Yisrael or Yaakov? Israel or Jacob? Clearly, most of us would, would rank Yisrael. There's no resistance. There's no, there's no obstruction. There's no concealment. You see the truth. I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. No other obstacles in my way. Who do you think you are, Rabbi Do? <laughs> I'm just waxing lyrical. That's all I'm doing. Right? The Yaakov, the, the, sorry, the Yisrael, the Israel persona is one who does not see obstruction, does not experience the hindrance of concealment. 
And so you would say, oh, that's, that's a way higher level of divine service. That's way preferred to the guy who's struggling, right? Isn't it better to be in outer space than pushing against the crust of the earth and the friction of, 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 of our atmosphere? So I want to begin with a paragraph that is the second paragraph on the page, on 26, where it begins with the word now. Because this is perfectly apropos. Now, the above implies that the level of Yisrael is much loftier than that of Yaakov, right? The person who sees the divine truth is obviously higher than the one who is confronted with its obstruction, the one who's not sure if God is there, if God is in this space, if you know they should be uh, um, capitulating to their temptations or trying to conquer it. The Yaakov is, is fraught with struggle and challenge. Yisrael, it's clear sailing. It would be obvious to say, or it would be understandable to say that the level of Yisrael is higher, much higher than that of Yaakov. But the truth is, and when I asked that question before, I saw some knowing glances shot my way of, if you've ever said a Kabbalah, you know the answer is always the opposite of what you're thinking. So, <laughs> right, take whatever you're thinking and choose the opposite. That's going to be the answer. But the truth is, he says, that there is a great advantage to the level of Yaakov, my servant, over the level of Yisrael. Let me explain. Yaakov, my servant, means the one who has to fight for every spiritual inch. The one who has to push against the negative internally and externally to, 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 uh, to, to achieve spiritual gains. There's an advantage to that persona over the Yisrael who's clear and free. To explain. The son, to explain. And again, he's going to correlate. I'm going to tell it to you very clearly in advance so that you know where we're going with this. He's going to correlate the idea, the Yaakov persona to the spiritual servant and the Yisrael persona to the spiritual son. So there's servant and son. The servant is the one who's struggling. The son is the one who is clear and, uh, and, and free. He's going to start with the son, with the, with the supposed higher level, which we'll see it's not the highest level. To explain, Yisrael is the dimension of son, whereas Yaakov is called servant as explained in a previous discourse, Vishavta. Oh, is that a different copy? Um, here, yes. Here, we have one more. Or use the book. We have, we have a book right here. Who's running this ship? Who's in charge? Who's in charge of this? Uh... All right, let's go. Let's go. Son and servant. To explain... I don't need the book because I memorized it by heart. I'm kidding. I have it up on my... No, I'm joking. I have it up on the... I'm reading it from the screen anyway. <laughs> Yisrael is the dimension of son, whereas Yaakov is called servant. As explained in a previous discourse, Vishafta, don't worry about the previous discourse. We're going to explain everything. We can understand the dimension of... So what is son and what is servant? What do these things mean? These seem like labels and terms. What does it actually mean? So we're going to, today we're going to study son. We can understand the dimension of son and man's relationship with God by using the metaphor of a human son's relationship to his father. I need to preface this by saying, what we're going to reference is a perfectly, I'm going to use a judgmental term here, healthy relationship of son to father, i.e. not the, necessarily the one that we've experienced either as a child or as a parent. That, by the way, this is by, by no means any, any I'm not uh, saying this by way of judgment, just saying that since human beings are imperfect, 
So no matter how good a father is trying to be or a son is trying to be, when it comes to the human dynamic, there's a little bit of, uh, of, of imperfection that then plays out in human experience. But we're still going to use the metaphor. And as we use the metaphor, look at how he lovingly describes this idealistic relationship between father and son. Even if it hasn't always borne out in our experiences, I, I, I ask that you appreciate this, this, uh, this representation of what that could look like. Here we go. The son naturally possesses a love for his father and is drawn to him with a great and powerful love. So he makes, so here's one point. There's actually a few points. I want to break this down. Number one, a son's connection to the father is not what I would call in uh, car stereo terminology, aftermarket. This is not random. This is not something that's an add-on after the fact. It's like, there's two types of love. There's more than two types of love, but let's just use two, two relationships. Let's talk about marriage and um, parent-child. What's the difference amongst many? One is inherent and one is learned. One comes after a certain amount of time, right? One is inherent. Parent gives birth to a child. Boom, there's a connection. You meet someone, you get to know them, you fall in love, you get married, you build a life together. That's great. That love wasn't always there. And I know Judaism speaks about soulmates and how the souls were really one and then separated and then they come back to one and all that is great. And there's a cute thing in Judaism. Marriage is one plus one equals one. Great. Welcome to the new math. All of that is great, but at, in, in a, on an on a, on a, uh, experiential level, that is not a love that was always there. It's a love that is a learned love. Correct? So notice, notice what he says here. The son, I'm going to break down the sentence I just read before. The son naturally possesses a love for his father. That word naturally is very important. It's a natural, it's a natural phenomenon within the child. The son naturally possesses a love for his father. That's point one. Point two, and is therefore drawn to him with a great and powerful love. So there's a natural love and then a drawing with great love. And you're thinking, well, is it natural? Is it drawn? What's the distinction? I've told you before, I've shared this in the past, the Kabbalistic definition of love. Love is a feeling of closeness and the desire to get closer. That's the working definition of love and that applies right here. Love is a feeling of closeness and a desire to get even closer. The son naturally possesses a love for his father and is drawn to him to get closer with a great and powerful love. Let's continue inside. He very much desires that which his father desires. This is the second point. So there's not only love, which is ava, there's also ratzon, which means willpower, or will or desire. The child, the son, desires what his father desires. If his father wants something, he also wants it. So he doesn't just love, he also experiences a sense of desire for what his father desires. After the M dash over there, the will of the father is also the will of the son. And conversely, that which is against the will of the father is absolutely against the will of the son. So what the father wants, the son wants. And what the father doesn't want, the son also doesn't want. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah. Are you sure all children? <laughs> I said this before. This is the perfect, idealized, you know, and on a good day, 
<laughs> Correct. That's what he's trying to say. The son, by extension of the father, maybe it's better to think of this with a younger child. Right? Look, a part of the experience of maturation is the child is actually trying to assert their own independence. And in order to assert independence, it's almost like the child has to push against all of this. But if you think about someone who's, I would say, doesn't feel the need to push against by doing the opposite, but someone who is, who is, who is comfortable in that relationship and that love, so this is the way it would work. A child, many children, certainly at a younger age, idolize their fathers. The fathers are their hero, right? And they, they, they have a love and they want to get closer. They want to spend time with the parent. This is not only father. This, this is also mother. This is not gender specific. I know we're saying son and father, but this is just by way of, of, of a metaphor, right? An analogy. So we have a child and we have a parent. The child loves the parent and wants to be close, spend time with the parent. What the parent loves, the child loves. What the parent wants, the child wants. What the parent doesn't like and doesn't want, the child doesn't like and doesn't want also. Very much a mirror image of the, of the parent. Let's continue. Furthermore, and he now extends it. You'll see why this is very important, all the stages of this metaphor. Furthermore, the son's logic dictates that which, that what the, sorry, let me say that again. Furthermore, the son's logic dictates that what the father wants is correct. In other words, understand this. It's not just that the son is drawn toward what the father wants, like the father is drawn to what he wants, what he himself wants. It's that that also affects the way the son understands the world. The son understands, creates a framework of understanding around what the father wants. So the logic of the son dictates, the logic means the seichel, the intelligence, the logical framework of the son, of the child, dictates that what the father wants is not just what he wants, but is correct, is right. In other words, the child substantiates the zone with seichel, the desire or the want with logic. In general, he says, the logic of the son matches that of the father. Right? The father's a Yankees fan. Yankees fan. The child is, all right, as the father. He thinks he should be a Yankee fan. He, think, he was misinformed by the father. That? He should have been a Mets fan. Oh, now we're going to get at the Mets. Listen, I have no skin in the game. I'm a, I'm a Pirates fan, oh, which, means, which means it's been a very humiliating 30-plus years. That's what that means. Sid Bream, I, 1992. For all of you, you were there at that game? I, I was. I want to tell you this. I want to tell you this. Here's the problem with that game. I, okay, so this, I know we're in the middle of a, of a mimer, of a discourse. However, it is baseball. So let's, uh, we have to like assess our priorities. So here's the deal. Oh, oh, Pirates heartbreak is always in season. It's something I'm living with constantly. The scars are real. Here's the deal. It was 1992. As a young man in Pittsburgh, my bar, just to give you a framework, my bar mitzvah was in the winter, February of 1992. So this is now a few months later. No, wait. Before. It's before? Yeah. It was 90. No, this was 90. Well, it was 92 playoffs. It was 90. 100% 1992. I'm telling you it was 90. Okay. All right. Whatever. It was 1992. They also got beat by the Braves in 91. 
But that and 90 by the by the by the Reds. It was 90 by the Reds, 91 by the Braves, and 92 by the Braves. Listen to this. It was 1992. I was a young man and a Pirates fan. And the Pirates had whatever. That's struggling with that. The Pirates had an outfield comprised of Bobby Bonilla in right field, Andy Van Slyke in center, and Barry Bonds, who would later, whose name would later live in infamy in left field. Francisco Cabrera gets up, bottom of the ninth inning. A guy who was in there, in there for his defensive prowess, but not the greatest hitter. He hits a line drive to left field. Barry Bonds, pre-juice. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> right? He was still skinny. He couldn't make the throw to home. Throws it home, offline. Sid Bream, who was limping, who was literally limping. Sid Bream used to be on the Pirates. Trust me, I know him very well. Sid Bream was not the fastest guy on the base pads. He limps his way around third and scores. But we all knew in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh had run out of money. There was no more money in the team. So that was it. The team was being disbanded. And indeed, it's been now, what, 32 years, 31 years, whatever, since uh, anything's happened. Why do I mention this? Oh, the, first of all, I, find it, I found this very therapeutic. Thank you for listening. But second of all, second of all, to tell you this, that a, the, the, not only does the son want what the father wants, the father wants something, the, the child wants that also, right? It's that the way the father thinks is all, also impacts the way the child thinks. In general, the logic of the son matches the logic of the father. The logic of the son, and it was the seichel of the son, he will understand the world in a way, in a similar way that the, that the father understands the world. As the father's logic dictates, back inside, paragraph of furthermore, third line in, as the father's logic di dictates, so does the son's. And he acts according to the father's desire in every detail and serves him with actual service, a complete service with all his heart and soul. When he says serves him, it means he does what his father wants, but not in a way of, oh, my father wants something, I guess I have to do it. In a way of desire, in a way of love, in a way that he can figure out what his father wants. You with me on that? Because his mind is so aligned with the father, then what the father wants, it's almost like the child can anticipate what the, what the father wants because he understands him so well. He understands him so well that what the father's seichel is mechaiv, I'm using the language of the mimer, what his seichel, what his logic is mechaiv, what, what his logic dictates, that's what the son's logic, his own logic dictates. His mind is, if you take a hard drive, and you can either you know, copy it over or you can mirror the drive. It's almost mirrored, right? Father to son. So the same internal drives and, 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 and seichel and, and logic that, that forms the, the will of the, of the father is doing the same for the child. Let's continue. Yet, here we go. All of this is only because the son derives from the father who bore him and he's considered to be of the father's essence. In other words, what, what is, what, where does this come from? It's not work. It's not effort on behalf of the son. Let me just be very clear here. It, this was not the product of a, a, a decision of the son to transform himself to be in the likeness of the father. This is natural. This is natural. It's like the story they tell, the parable they tell of the guy who's climbing the mountain, climbing the, 
I don't know, the, the Himalaya is probably not, as you'll see the story play out, he's climbing the mountain and he spends so much time, years training and getting the right equipment and then climbing and he gets up there and he sees a child. He says, how did you get here? He says, I was born here. Some people, sometimes you have to work hard to get to that place. Sometimes to get to that place, you just have to be born there. The child doesn't have to work to align himself. The son doesn't have to work to align himself with his father's desire, with his father's seichel, with his father's loves. It's natural. I'm going to read that again. Yet all of this is only because the son derives from the father who bore him, and he's considered to be of the father's essence. As in the statement, a son is the leg of his father. In other words, just like the leg, it's, a, it's a, obviously a, 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 a metaphor, a parable. Just like <coughs> a leg is part of the person. See, a son is the leg of the father, meaning the son, the child is it's part of the dad. He is therefore, because of that essential bond, drawn to his father with love and desire constantly. Since every being is drawn to its source. There's a, there's a beautiful teaching in the Gemara, in the Talmud. It says, Zarak Chutra. Maybe it's the Zohar. I don't know where it's from. It's definitely Aramaic. Zarak Chutra Aikra Koi. When you throw a stick, it lands on the root, the root side. Not just because of the heaviest side. It's really a metaphor, right? When you throw something, it lands, goes back to its source. A child is naturally drawn to, 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 to its source, to its source. This is also why, last few lines of this paragraph, is also why the inclination and characteristics of the son conform to that of the father, since from him he was taken. In other words, it's like nature, it's natural. It naturally flows back to the source. So that's why we said three things. There's a natural love for the father, desire to get closer. There's a natural sense of what the father wants, I want. I want what my father wants. And the third step is, my logic dictates and supports that which my father wants, i.e. that which I want. Let's continue. Therefore, step four, whatever his father commands him to work on, page 28, or to do, is not a bother or a burden at all. In other words, when the father says, hey, this is what I'd like, this is what I want, it's not a burden, it's not a pain for the child. Because the child is excited about it. Not only is the child excited because the parent wants it and the child loves the parent, the child's excited because their own logic, their own seichel dictates the same thing. You with me on this? It's, it's incongruent, not incongruent. It is congruent with the child's own way of thinking and own way of feeling. The child is motivated to do it because he or she also wants to do it. To the contrary. He will serve and do his father's will with pleasure and joy, even more so than the sort of work he would do for his own needs. And here he ups it, a, he ups it a, a notch. It's not only he does it the same as he would do what he wants himself. He's doing it with even more pleasure and joy than the stuff that he would do for himself. I stated in the Zohar, like a son who exerts himself for his father and mother, whom he loves more than his own self, etc. Ah, oh, you like how mother got in there. You see that? Look at that. The Zohar 
is, is keeping, keeping us all, all equal. I told you it was non-gender specific, but here we have a source that actually states it clearly. Right? The Zohar says, like a child who exerts, well, a son who exerts himself to his fa- for his father and mother more than his own self. Now, that's all of this is the parable or the metaphor. Let's bring this back to one category of souls. You see, there are certain people, and I told you before, this is the very few minority. There are certain individuals who feel so aligned with God that what God, that, that number one, they're drawn to God with love. Number two, whatever God wants, they want. However God thinks, they think. And they're motivated, they're more motivated to do what God wants more than what they personally want to do for themselves. How many people do you know like this? Very few, right? Very few individuals. This is the persona called Yisrael. I have to say, would you just explain? Sorry? Yeah, we could use a few good, few good leaders. Explain to me, rationalizes anti-Semitism over thousands of years. What do you mean? Well, it started thousands of years ago, and the sun continues the sons of for generation and generation and generation. <laughs> now we know why. Wait, I don't understand why. The sons of Esau. Yeah. Oh, because they're thinking like they're... Th- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, correct. Right, I was thinking for the positive. You're saying for the negative also works. Whatever the parent thinks, the child thinks. Right, correct. Good. Now, let's jump back in, and we're going to do two more paragraphs, and we're going to close it out for today. Similarly, the souls of Israel... The souls of Israel, not Yaakov, right? Not Yaakov. The souls of Israel are called sons. As in the verse, usually B'nai Yisrael means everybody. But in this case, we're being specific between Yaakov and Yisrael. Some of the souls of Israel are called sons. As in the verse, you are sons. You are sons to the Lord your God. Or B'nai B'chari Yisrael, my son, my firstborn Israel. And similar verses. So there are verses, plenty of verses in Scripture that refer to us as God's children. This title is true because of their source on high, since they derive from the inner dimension of the essence of the Ein Sof, in the wisdom of the supernal brain, as in the expression, wisdom is in the brain. We see this concept also in the phrase, for you are our father, literally, ki ata avinu, this is the son relating to the father as a father, literally. Just like a child is born from the DNA of the father, so too spiritually we possess, the souls of Israel possess, the DNA of God, the spiritual DNA of God. Therefore, even divine worship, such as reading Shema and prayer and performing Torah mitzvot all day, is not burdensome for such a soul at all. A soul that feels like a child of God's doesn't find it burdensome, doesn't fi- find it tiring to daven, to study Torah, to do mitzvot, etc. It is like a natural instinct within his divine soul to walk in the path of God without veering right or left, without the sense of a yoke or burden at all. There's no friction. There's no friction. Like the rocket in outer space, you're not pushing against anything. There's only love and desire and motivation, and it's, it's all very natural. There's no effort. It's an effortless um, uh, congruency with God. And whatever is the divine will, is also his will. He truthfully wants it from the inner recesses of his soul. Conversely, his soul literally despises what is contrary to the divine will, for his soul is literally like and aligned with the divine will.
We're going to stop here, even though we're kind of in the middle of it. He's going to say in the next paragraph that, that, like we explained in the human example, that the son's mind thinks like the father's mind. So to this person, this soul thinks like God. Fine. We're going to leave it here for now. What we've described over the last page and a half is the type of person or the type of soul that is unmarred by the darkness, by the opacity of this world, is unblemished or unhindered by the temptations of the body and the animal soul. This is a person who, like a child, is completely aligned with God, who loves God, who's drawn close to God, who wants to um, get even closer to God, someone who wants what God wants, doesn't want what God doesn't want, thinks the way God thinks, and does for God more than they would do for themselves. This is a tzaddik, by all accounts, a tzaddik. And you and I would say, this would be the ideal halavai, if only we would all be like this. Imagine if you would all be aligned with God and what God wanted. It would be amazing. It would be unbelievable. It would be spectacular. Shame that for most of us, this is not the reality. For most of us, it's like, at best case, which we haven't yet developed, at best case, we're trying to be a servant, someone who does it, even though it's a pain. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I have to do it. I have to do it. I'm being forced to do it, like a servant, being forced to do it. That seems like a way lower level. But of course, let this play out, because we'll soon see how, you know, if we say loosely the 99% and the 1%, Although it seems like the 1% is way higher here, the tzaddikim, the few tzaddikim are way higher, there's power in the 99%. So this week, like the rocket, here's my message, my blessing, my prayer, and my charge for this week. For this week, let's all remember the lessons of the rockets. The lessons of the rocket are number one. Number one, utilize the friction in your life to climb higher. Lesson number two, Work and strive to achieve growth so that you're not, so that you and I are not struggling over the same things that we struggled 20 years ago. Let's drop, let's drop parts. What's the word that you use that's called? Jettison. Jettison or whatever. Let's, let's drop, let's drop parts of the rocket that we don't need, right? And, and let's find areas in our life in which we've broken through of the atmosphere, in which we don't experience that friction anymore, but we fly and soar in a way that is pure and peaceful um, and, and, and secure. And indeed, I want to end the class like we began the class. May all of our Torah study be in the merit of blessings for Am Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, for the people and the land of Israel. May all of those that need to come home, come home immediately. May everyone be safe and secure. May we have peace and healing in our land and in all of our lands. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining today. And uh, just a few quick announcements. This is scheduling announcements. We're starting a brand new series Tuesday night. The Rebbe called for 10 specific mitzvot in honor, uh, throughout the years in honor of, uh, uh, and, and security, in honor of the security of Israel and the Jewish people. We're going to be doing a deep dive analysis of these 10 mitzvot and understand how they're done and why they're done and specific nuances about these cases, about these uh, mitzvot. Tuesday night, <coughs> excuse me, check your local listings. Um, for that, um, Rabbi Mandy Weinberg is teaching that course, and we are rolling out a, a women's Shabbat, Shabbat morning uh, class starting not this Shabbat as it was originally. There's a bar mitzvah this week. We're going to start it next week, the 18th, um, and other classes that are coming up and opportunities. I sent out an email this morning. If you're not on the email list and, and getting all these emails, 
then let me know. Give me your email. If, if you, assuming you want to be on it, let me know. And uh, I, I, with pleasure, I will add you to the list so that you make sure that you, you get, you're up to date on all the stuff that's coming up. It's also on our website, thetorahcenteratl.org. And of course, sponsorship and dedication opportunities are always there, thetorahcenteratl.org slash donate. All right. Great to see everybody. Shavua Tov. May we experience lots of blessings and peace. Thank you. Zoom as well. Yes. Thank you for asking. Sindri, yes. Tuesday night in person and on Zoom. Bye, guys. Great to see you all. Matt, Ellen, David, Larry, Merle. Great to see you. Um, who else do we have? I'm not sure exactly. Uh, let's see. All right. I don't know the names of everybody. but Good to see you guys. Pleasure. Dr. David, great to see you as always. And, and everybody. All right. Shavuot Tov. See you guys. One important question. Yeah.